It's uh, seldom quite that clear at the moment, but um, sometimes it actually is, uh, thanks to Kat and her team for setting up the series, and uh, good to see you here on, um, I, I, I was guessing you would have to fight your way through the uh, BMW Classic traffic, maybe not so much this morning, see how that unfolds. Um, about 25 years ago, when I was working uh, as the director of a college ministry out in Washington, I would occasionally be invited to, to speak to various groups, to um, uh, dorm councils, fraternities, sports teams. Uh, occasionally, I'd be the, the faith community representative in a classroom. and um, So I would, I would get asked to speak in settings where I was quite confident that not everyone was glad that a pastor was showing up to talk. So I needed, a, um, I needed a strong opening. I needed something to make me look a little bit more like a regular, likable guy. And I would often tell uh, a joke. Uh, one particular joke, it was a bit risky, but if it worked, um, I was good. And the joke went like this, a man dies and he goes to heaven. And when he gets there, it's just uh, as advertised, streets of gold, pearly gates, everyone's lying around on clouds with a harp. Uh, That much he expected. What was surprising was that there were hundreds of millions, billions of clocks. And everywhere you looked, there were clocks. And and each of the clocks had a name with it. And he thought about this for a while, because the clocks were all telling different times, and he figured, well, these, these must be showing how much time people have on earth before they die. So he asked the little angel tour guide that he had, is that, is that what's going on here? And the, and the angel said, no, no, these actually aren't clocks, they're dials, they're sin dials. And he said, sundials? He goes, no, 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 not sundials, they're sin dials. He goes, we keep track of everyone's sin, and he goes, these dials sort of show you how much sin is taking place. And every time they sin, the dial moves. And he goes, see, some of the dials are moving quickly, and some of the dials are not moving hardly at all. Well, the guy thought this was quite fascinating, so he started looking for his uh, friends to see what they were up to. And this is, this is where the joke got risky, because then I would start to point to people in the group. And I won't do that this morning, so you can all relax. <laughs> But he would point to people and he'd go, so Alice here, he looked at her dial and it wasn't moving hardly at all, which wasn't really a surprise. Alice is a pretty nice person. And then he looked at, uh, he looked at Jeff's and Jeff's dial uh, was also not moving much. But then uh, Jennifer's dial, it had a little bit of pace to it, um, almost like a second hand. It was moving its way around. Uh, but what he couldn't find is he couldn't find uh, Brad's dial. I will pick on Brad since he reports to me I can't. So <laughs> Brad's dial he couldn't find. And so eventually he asks, he goes, where's, um, where's the sin dial for, for Brad? And the angel goes, Brad. He goes, yeah. He goes, like Brad Coleman. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, it's actually not, not here. And he goes, well, I thought everybody had a dial. And he goes, yeah, he's got a dial. And he goes, but um, they, they've borrowed it down below. Because it's a lot hotter down there, and they like to use the dial as a fan. 
Now, the joke would work if I had picked the right person, someone well-known, someone well-liked, and someone willing to laugh at themselves. I could count on the fact that most people had what I'm going to call a fairly simplistic, maybe even a junior high understanding of sin. Sin is sort of funny. Um, It's things that you do generally involving um, uh, bad words that you use, uh, beer or sex. That was sort of That was sort of my assumption, and in a fraternity and other places, it worked quite well. Now, there's nothing really wrong with a junior high definition of of sin if you're in junior high. But I'd like to suggest that at some point, it would be uh, helpful to have a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced understanding of what sin is and what we're up against. And so... Today we kick off this series called Seven, and what I want to do in Seven uh, is is explore sin just a bit. And today, in particular, I want to share six reasons why you should be a part of this series. And the first reason is because um, sin holds us back. Sin pulls us down. Sin uh, makes a mess of our life. Sin keeps us from being who we could be and who we should be and who we want to be. It makes us small. It robs us of joy. It hurts other people. Because it has a great PR firm, that's not the way it's understood. It's generally uh, understood to be something a little bit more um, laughable, sort of harmless, exciting. Uh, It has a little bit of an edge to it. But um, it's the spice of life. And um, I want to say it's not that at all. Simone Weil, a, a 20th, early 20th century philosopher, French um, philosopher and Christian mystic, said this, which I think is, is brilliant. She wrote, imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy and monotonous, barren and boring. Imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating. Sin uh, robs us of the life we have been given. Sin makes us small. Uh, Last week I finished a series on change in which I argued, first, that change is possible. We can get better. Improvement is an option. A better version of you is waiting should you pursue it. Secondly, in order to get better, we need some understanding of who we are or where we are at the moment and where we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be. Third, Jesus provides this information for us. In his life, in his example, in his teaching, Jesus helps us understand what we're to aspire to. He helps us understand what kind of better is actually better. And then number four, I said the the transformation process that we want to be a part of is different than the process of actually becoming a Christ follower. The process of, to use a theological term, 
our justification of becoming a Christian, of of stepping over the line, that moment of repenting of our sin and in declaring our allegiance to Christ, that is something that happens, however you might experience it. It happens at a moment in time, and it is something that is dependent entirely upon the work of Christ, Christ alone. The transformation process... The process of becoming more like Christ, of growing more in his image, that is an ongoing activity, and it depends upon our participation and work. We can't do it on our own, but God will not do it on his own. And so we have been told to work out our salvation and to press on towards the goal and to discipline ourselves for godliness. So in light of that, I then showed uh, some diagrams. I put one diagram up and I said, look, we are where we are at this moment because of the decisions we've made and the forces pushing on us. And there are things that we do, there are forces that push us in the right direction. To worship God is a transformative activity. To put him at the very center of our lives and and to take ourselves out of that. That is part of... What happens when we're being changed? To to read and really engage in Scripture is something that transforms us. To serve other people, especially the poor. These are activities that push us in the right direction, but there are forces aligned against us pushing back. Spiritual forces of evil. The effect or the weight of our sin. Because even though we can be forgiven of our sin, the, the, the repercussions of that sin remain. There are, there are forces pushing us one way. There are forces pushing us another way. And then I said last week, if we want to go this way, if we want to move in the right direction, we need to understand that this sanctification process uh, is the result of, of truth times grace times time divided by sin that sort of represents the progress that we make. And so I spent a lot of time then defining truth, defining grace, talking about time, and said, uh, come back and we'll look at the denominator, right? The numerator is what we focused on before. Come back and we'll look at, at sin. Sin is the great minimizer. Sin divides our joy, divides our life. The first reason you ought to be a part of of this series is because sin holds us back. It makes us small. The second reason I would encourage you to be a part of this series is because sin is tricky. It's misleading and deceptive. Chances are you don't understand it as well as you might think. Um, One level this is understandable because we have really moved into an era where uh, we don't talk about sin. In fact, a growing number of people deny that any such thing exists. Uh, We we hear people talking about mistakes or um, emotional immaturity or personality disorders or struggles or class struggles or failing to realize potential. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of, of concepts that are shared to suggest that we're not who we could be or should be, but today... Uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, we stopped talking about sin almost altogether. Sin 
sort of replaced sex as the S word that you don't talk about in polite conversation. And to some extent, about the only sin remaining is to suggest that something might be sin. And so, as a result, we don't, we don't understand sin like people once did. Um, now, there's a variety of ways we could try and rectify this. We could, for instance, um, do a, a, a study on the various Hebrew and Greek terms that are used in the Bible, uh, all of which are translated sin. Right? There's a bunch of different words in the Hebrew that all get represented by the English word sin. Some uh, reflect uh, deliberate rebellion, some sort of unintentional mistakes. Some uh, are describing a, a stain, others a weight. Uh, th- there's words that, that reflect, um, one of the Greek words for sin is, is an archery term. If you shot an arrow at a target and it fell short of the target, uh, that word was used, and this is the word that's used when we're told by Paul that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a, there's a bunch that we could learn about sin by looking at all the different nuanced terms that the Bible uses to describe it. Uh, we could also explore the categories that people have come up with for sin. Uh, there are sins of omission and sins of commission, right? There are things that we're, that we're supposed to do that we don't do. There are things that we're not supposed to do that we do. Some people try and divide sin into mortal and venial sins. Mortal being capital B-A-D sins, venial not so much. Um, there's a lot of, there's, a, there's a, a, a rich theological discussion we could enter into about sin. And when I get in those conversations, I'm, I'm usually trying to make at least three points. Uh, first, I think it's, it's more helpful to think of sin as a condition than as an action. We are not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The condition precedes the action. The problem runs very deep. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm always wanting to highlight the fact that sin is ultimately stupid. Uh, it, it is an act against our own best interests. We're never expected, never asked to act against our own best interest. The problem is we can't always understand what's in our best interest. And in light of eternity, what may look like it's not in our best interest might actually be in our best interest. And thirdly, I, I, I want people to understand that when it comes to sin, it's better to think of it uh, as the act of a traitor than the act of a criminal. Right? Sin is rebellion against a gracious, loving, uh, good, holy creator God. Sin is more the act of a traitor than it is the act of a criminal. There's much that we could learn if we, if we stayed in the theological realm. I, I want to, for this series, I want to be a little bit, um, I want to take a little different approach. And so I, I just want to share six observations about sin that will help us uh, get started. And the first one is that sin is, um, is attractive, right? Sin always looks, it looks good. It, it, uh, it if, if mocha almond fudge tasted like brand cereal, right, it wouldn't be a temptation. Uh, so we need to understand out of the gate 
that uh, sin is often fun at least for a while. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be tempted by it. Secondly, sin is easy. Uh, It's almost always easier in the short run to do the wrong thing than the right thing. It's not easier in the long run, but sin is easy. It's it's, anybody can do it. Uh, Everybody does. Massive amounts of sin are committed by rank amateurs. Uh, Every sin in one level is within your reach should you decide to pursue it, right? Uh, Sin is easy. Number three, sin is deceptive. Sin has perfected the art of bait and switch. Uh, It's initially quite appealing, but it can't deliver as promised over time. We would never sign up for it if we understood the true cost. Number four, sin is defective. Uh, it's broken good. It's, it's nothing uh, that we would actually want if we could see it compared to what it could be. C.S. Lewis makes this point masterfully in the Screwtape Letters where he has this dialogue going on between um, sort of mid-level demons in the bureaucracy of hell, talking about how to tempt people uh, to sin and destruction. And he has the senior demon say, um, our R&D department has been working night and day to try and create something. We can't get it done. All we can do is destroy, right? All, all that evil can offer is broken good. The good is always better. Sin is defective by definition. Number five, sin is destructive. It destroys us. It breaks us down. It holds us back. It deforms our soul. It, um, it hardens our heart. It promises freedom but it delivers carnage. It promises liberty, but what it delivers is slavery. And, and theoretically, it's, I think it's easiest to understand this by thinking about uh, a train. A train is designed to run on train tracks. And it is free to run when it runs on the tracks. When it is free from the tracks, then it crashes. There is a difference, not generally understood, between the freedom of and the freedom from. Right? There is the freedom of discipline. There is the freedom of right choices. Right? Athletes and musicians have the freedom to perform at a level that that they couldn't otherwise perform at because of the discipline. I mean, Jim Furyk can shoot a 59 at Conway because of the the discipline he has brought to the game. I've played Conway, and I shot a 59, right? And I still had, you know, eight holes to go. (laughs) Musicians are free to create music, free to leave the music behind and to create something not on the page because of the discipline of their life. When we want the freedom from discipline, 
well then, that doesn't lead us anywhere, right? We can, we can be free from the rules, but then life doesn't work. Right? We, we need to understand that, 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 that the, the rules that God has given us are because that's the way life works. Right? It's, people will, will sometimes say, you know, I, I'm, I'm being punished. I have cancer because, right, I cheated on my taxes or I cheated on my spouse or see, No, 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 no. That's not, that's not the way God works. If you cheat on your taxes, what's likely to happen is that you will get caught and you'll be fined and maybe you'll go to prison. If you cheat on your spouse, then what happens is you, you ruin your marriage, you damage your soul, you mess up the lives of your children. You don't get cancer because you cheat on your spouse, right? And God is trying to prevent us from hurting ourselves. Sin is destructive. And finally, sin is progressive. What begins as an excuse soon becomes a habit and then a cage. Sin not only gets easier, right? It, it like a junkie, we need more of it in order to get the same thrill. So once we cross the line, whatever line that is, it's easier to cross that line the next time. And then pretty soon, crossing that line isn't enough. We have to cross the next line and the next line because right, sin is broken good. It can't deliver. It can't please. It can't satisfy. And so it will take more and more and return less and less over time. Sin is, is, is tricky, right? A second reason for you to be in this series is because you may not understand what you're up against as well as you might think. Third, uh, many of us have stalled. Many of you have stepped over the line. You have made a decision to follow Christ. You've yielded your life to Christ, confessed your sin, declared your allegiance to him. You've stepped over the line, but many of you who have stepped over the line haven't moved very far from the line. And uh, you, you, may have, you may have grown in other ways, right? You got a job promotion, uh, got in shape, lowered your handicap, I don't know. You, you, you've, you've taken ground in other ways. But if you're honest, you have plateaued spiritually. You stalled a long time ago. And what you need to understand is... Um, more of the same will yield more of the same. Right? I mean, this is, this is the, the lesson from last week. Time simply multiplies the present. It doesn't, we will not necessarily get better over time. We'll only get better over time if we're getting better right now. Then time will accelerate growth. If we're headed in the wrong direction, time, doesn't, time is not our friend. And so we, just, we are where we are. Our life is, is perfectly working out to place us where we are. Everything we think, do, and say has all perfectly delivered the results it's delivered. So if we want different results, we have to change some part of the equation. And we don't control all the variables, but we do control some of them. So if you want different results, there has to be some different activity. Many of us are stalled. We need to move forward. Number four, the fourth reason to be a part of this series is because the seven deadly sins is a, is a proven approach. Now, please 
please listen carefully because I don't want to later be accused of misleading you. I'm not saying it's an easy approach, and I'm not saying it's a quick approach. You're not going to get three quick steps that lead to overnight transformation. If you know those three steps, I'd be very interested in hearing them. I don't know them, uh, and I don't think they exist. We hear that you can you know, go on this diet and eat everything you want and lose weight. And you can uh, you know, uh, start this job and work just a few hours a month from your home and triple your income. And you can, uh, you know, you can take this program and, and learn and improve your grades by studying while you sleep. Right? I mean, everybody's got a, everybody's got a plan out there. And it's always easy and it's always going to work. And generally, they don't work. But there are people that say, you know, you want to lose weight? Oh, we know how that works. We can help you. Um, you're going to eat less, and, and we're going to put you through a real rigorous workout five times a week that you're not going to like. But it'll work. I mean, we've, we've figured this out. And uh, you, you want to get better grades? Yeah, okay. We know how that works too. Uh, but you're going to have to study, and you're going to have to be disciplined. And there's gonna, so, so we figured some of these things out. And they're hard, <laughs> and, but they work. So the seven deadly sins is, is like 1,800 years old, right? I mean, it's been around a long time. It's not a new concept. As, as you know, if you, um, if, if you read the first chapter in the book as part of this series, or maybe you've heard me say this before, the seven deadly sins grew out of um, the, the reflections and the writings of the desert fathers initially coming out of Egypt. And what happened is that there were sort of two groups of people that fled to the desert in the early, late 3rd, early 4th century. Some of them were going there to be like Jesus, who had gone into the wilderness uh, for 40 days of fasting in order to prepare himself for, for future ministry. Others went into the desert to flee the corruption that was around them. Constantine had recently taken over. It had been illegal to be a Christian up until this time. He issues this edict of toleration, and lots of people begin uh, to step forward and become Christ followers. Um, Initially, everybody's happy about that, but some of the people who had been Christians for a while thought uh, that the bar was being lowered, right? That that the purity of the faith that was represented by people who were willing to be persecuted for their faith was higher than now. It was the popular thing to do. And additionally, Constantine was exerting control over the church, and so some people felt like the church was corrupt, and so a bunch of people run out into the desert to get away from the corruption. What both groups of people discovered when they're out in the desert is that um, we bring our problems with us. Right? You can't get away from them. Right? Just because you leave the city behind doesn't mean you leave behind anger and greed and envy and lust and sloth and gluttony and pride. Right? They come with us. And, and this list of seven deadly sins, uh, all the sins are found in the Bible, but the list itself is not found in the Bible. What It developed out of sort of hundreds of years of reflection of people saying, when you're stuck this way, the root cause is actually this. This is the real issue you're dealing with. And those issues were reduced down to the seven that, um, that made the list. And there's not even one list. 
There's a variety of lists of the seven deadly sins out there. It's not found in the Bible, so there's no right list. But we're going to look at at the most common list. And I want to say this is a list that has been proven uh, over time. If you follow it, right, you you will not become perfect and it won't be easy. But we grow. We, 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 we're moving in the right direction. So I would set this in front of you. Number five, the fifth reason why I would suggest that you be a part of this series is because the stakes are high. Uh, I know that pretty much, not everybody, but pretty much everybody that I end up speaking to uh, are busy. Um, some of you are crazy busy. And I also know that um, not everything that's part of your schedule really matters. Some things matter more than others. And I want to say that uh, some things matter eternally. And they matter more than some of the things you're giving time and attention to. Your relationship with God, the state of your soul, matters. It matters a lot. It will matter a million years from now. What we're doing today affects everything. And so I want to say, this doesn't have to be the Seven Deadly Sins program. It doesn't have to be Christ Church. There's lots of great churches out there. There's lots of programs. But you got to do something, right? You need to be, you need to work on your relationship with God and the state of your soul. And, and, this is a path forward. And, and the time to work on it is now, not at some future date. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I've shared this with some of you. Some of you may have heard. Um, but I, I'm, I had a, um, a significant last 10 days. Uh, 10 days ago, I got the call. For 10, uh, 10 years or so, Sherry and I, both of our parents are alive and, and healthy. For 10 years, we have said, we're going to get a call, right? That's what's going to set everything in motion. We're going to hear that somebody, one of our parents has had a heart attack or a stroke or fallen or um, is confused or has cancer or something, right? We're going to get a call. We need to be ready for the call. Well, last Thursday night, I got the call. Uh, my mom called. It was a little out of uh, characteristic for her to call on a Thursday night. And so I said, hey, how you doing? And she goes, well, um, we want to talk to you about that. Will you call us right back so we can both be on the line? Uh, I resisted the urge to say, mom, you could both be on the line now with the technology that you have. But okay, whatever. I'll call you back. <laughs> so I called back and um, I said, what's up? And my dad said, uh, well, he said, uh, I went to the doctor a week ago for a physical. They called me back the next day and said that I had leukemia. I just left. Uh, they ran more tests. I just left the doctor's office a couple hours ago. He says, I have the worst kind. And he said, you know, given the variables, he goes, there's probably no viable path forward for treatment. He says, I have six to eight weeks to live. Now, let me say two things. First of all, um, I was prepared for the call, but I was sort of expecting that the call would be, uh, you know, cancer, two to three years of decline, and die. 
And let me also say that um, jumping forward, the, the prognosis has been revised. Uh, we all went to the doctor, uh, all the kids went to the doctor uh, early this week, and the doctor said, I'm looking at your blood results, I feel a little, little sheepish, because I scared you silly four days ago and told you you had six weeks to live. He goes, things, your blood is not doing what I thought it would do. Good news, maybe six months. And he says, and I, I think you ought you to treat this. I think, I think we can knock this, maybe we can knock this into remission. So my dad has entered a four- to five-week inpatient chemo, and there's a 20% chance that he dies from the treatment in the next couple weeks. Uh, if he makes it through the treatment, there's a 50% chance that for some period of time the, the, the leukemia will be knocked into remission. So um, I, I share all that in part to say this. I, I left church last Sunday and raced to the airport and flew down. Three of my siblings were already there. The other one was, was to follow. And uh, had just, by the way, just a tremendous uh, 48 hours with, with everybody and some very, very profound remember-till-I-die uh, conversations just one-on-one -on -one with my dad, just sort of, you know, cleaning up around the edges and expressing love and hearing him sort of bless me. It was, it was I, I told Sherry, I go, I, I just don't know that it's going to get a lot better than that. I mean, if I don't see him again, I don't know that I'm going to get closure better than that. It was great. Um, so... I, it, it was, a, it was a, a blessed time. I am so glad that my dad is a different guy than he was 15 years ago. I am so glad that he has grown. I am, it, it is, I am, I just look at a guy who says, you know what, I'm, I'm good. Right, if I die, I, it's better. I go to heaven. I'm good with that. And I'm, I'm good if I stay. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's just in a very different spot. The time to prepare, either to make the call or to receive the call, is now. The time to prepare is not when the call comes. There's no time to prepare at that point. And so this is a way forward, right? Some things matter and other things don't. And you need to look at your schedule and say what ultimately matters. And then finally, the sixth reason I would set this in front of you is because for the next eight weeks, we're making it as easy as we can for you to be part of this. Sermons, daily readings showing up in your email box if you've signed up, uh, readings that in, in this book that tie together the sermons, and, and, and then being in a small group to discuss all of this stuff, uh, we're pulling it all together. And so... Um, you got to show up, right? You got to gather some friends uh, to be in a discussion group or sign up to be in a small group. You've got to you've got to make time for the devotional readings. You've got to read your assignments in the book. You've got to be honest uh, with yourself and with God. You've got to be willing for God to do things in your life. You know, no one can do any of that for you, but we're trying to make the path forward as easy as we can. And so you get your last chance today. Um, to get a book, to sign up for the devotions, to, to get in a small group or to get the stuff to host a small group and to move forward. And let me just say, you know, one of the things that also was a great blessing, my parents had not told anyone uh, what was going on, didn't want to until they knew the treatment plan and what the path forward was. 
So we didn't tell anyone, oh, well, we, we told our small groups, right? My dad's in a small group. My mom's in a small group. They go, we told, you know, we, we told that group because, right, that's what you do, right? That's how you, that's how you navigate these things. And, I, you know, there's five of us. We're, we're as kids. We're going to do all that we can. But they've got such a big support group around them. And they were intentional about building that 15 years ago. Right? You, you got you to do these things now. Well, men and women, it's time to be more intentional about things that matter. Um, you can take steps to, to move closer to a God who loves you and who wants what's best for you. You can move in the right direction. None of this will happen by accident. You are not accidentally going to become more like Christ any more than you are accidentally going to wake up and say, wow, I'm in the best shape of my life. It doesn't happen that way. If it's going to happen, you have to be intentional about it. I hope that you will choose to be intentional about it. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I am sure that I speak for many in this room when I say we are very tired of, um, of the cycles and patterns of sin in our life and of doing things that um, hurt others and of being full of pride and envy and lust and greed and anger and uh, sloth. And we, wanna, we want to get better. We want to become more of who you would uh, have us be in Christ. And um, I pray that you would work through us. Holy Spirit, we cannot change our heart. We know that our efforts um, are short-lived and lead to temporary results. We want you to change our hearts. So guide us to that end. Move in and through us. Help us to become more like um, the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.